When I was in college, freshman year, I wasn't very social. I was going through a lot of tension over where I was at spiritually. and I honestly spent a lot of time reclused in a library. There was one Friday night in particular. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and I was probably the only person in the library. Even the librarians used to leave me from time to time. And you know, I was on the fourth floor of this big, huge university library. And I was um, looking through books, and I stumbled upon this little volume, really well-worn, really old volume that I pulled off the shelf. And all of it said on the side was, Confessions, Tolstoy. Now, I, I, I knew a little bit about Tolstoy. He's that Russian literary genius who wrote War and Peace. Anna Karenina, I mean, these massive tomes, he's famous for plumbing the depths of the human heart and human experience in ways that almost no other modern man has. And uh, and so I was like, but what is this? I've, I know it's fiction work, but what? what? What is this? And so I sit down, I'm sitting on the floor, like on one of those little stools at 11 o'clock at night, all by myself in the library, and I open it up, and I start reading it, and I promise you I read the entire thing in one setting. I didn't leave the library till like 2 a.m. And it was this story of, of his personal spiritual journey. And it was driven by this one, this one observation. He says, there is within the human heart an insatiable drive for more. And when he says that, he's not talking about more stuff, although some people seek more stuff. He's talking about more like there's something in us that says we're incomplete, that we want to be more than the way we are. That when we, we go into relationships, we always want something deeper. Like it's never quite satisfying what we're looking for in our relationships with other people. That, that we have within us something, this need, this deep, deep fundamental desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. This desire that we would have meaning in our lives. And in that, he goes through this with his genius, genius mind, goes into the search. What is it that causes that? And the way he would phrase it is, what, what story makes sense of this? How can you... So he thinks of life in terms of story. And for them, he doesn't mean fiction. He means that everything in life can be told and explained through a story. What, what story makes possibly makes sense of this deep, deep need in us? And he actually came across um, an Eastern fable that I want to share with you. When he was a young man, this was his perspective. This was the story of life to Leo Tolstoy, how everything worked. He said, well, there's a man, starts with a man, and he's walking through a meadow. And out of the woods comes a hideous beast. And so the man runs and he sees a well. And he runs and runs and runs, and just before the hideous beast captures him, he dives into the well. And as he's diving, he catches a little vine. And here's the man hanging for his dear life. While he's hanging there, out of the side of the well come two little mice. One is black and one is white. And they start circling around the vine. As they circle, they nibble away the vine. And then while he's sitting there, hanging, thinking, what am I going to do? He looks on the vine, and on one of the leaves are two little drops of honey. Leo Tolstoy, when he was a young man, he saw this story and said, that's it. That is the story of life. There, there are people in life who they come, they're in this position, they're caught in this well. And if they try and strive with all their might to achieve and climb and make themselves into something, they will climb to the top of the well and be met by death, the hideous beast. 
And then there are people who are hanging there, foundationless, hanging, and they see the honey and they think, well, that looks good. And they close their eyes, they lick that honey, and they enjoy the honey so much that they forget that they're hanging in midair, going to die any moment. And then, then there are those who see their position, their predicament, and realize that there's no hope. If I climb out, I die. If I drop, I die. If I wait, I die. And they have the courage, he says, to let go. You know, for, for Leo Tolstoy, he had lived this life. He, he had climbed as high as he could climb. He was the genius of his day. He, he was Leo Tolstoy, who we still know his name today. And he knew where that ended. And he had tried the honey. He had dove into drunkenness and all this. And he had tried to escape through entertainment and through pleasures and found that no matter what he gave himself to, he couldn't, couldn't escape what was coming. And he was at this point in his life where he was ready to let go. Many of his other friends had actually already committed suicide. But there's one problem with it. One thing that didn't, one piece that didn't, of the puzzle that didn't fit into this story for him. And it was the fact that there were all these peasants, all these peasants, his own servants, who, who worked really, really hard in life, who were striving in life, achieved almost nothing and had greater satisfaction than him. That there were these peasants who, who would lick the honey. They would enjoy life. They would celebrate and do all these celebrations. And they seemed to know absolutely clearly that death was coming and it didn't take away their peace and joy. There, there was a group of people who held to life so loosely that they would let go of money, of their own freedom, of their own children. And yet they never let go of hope. And these Christian peasants, he couldn't make sense of them. They didn't fit into his story. And, he, and that was the only thing that stopped him from killing himself. Leo Tolstoy's question is a great one. One that we cannot afford to overlook. What is the story behind our insatiable drive for more? Why do we work so hard? Why do we try and define ourselves by what we do? Why are we so afraid to listen to our own heart that we constantly plug in and turn on and check our next email? Why is it that we cling to life so hard that we, we just refuse to let go of any of our possessions or any of our freedoms? We have to protect every single one of our rights. What are we clinging to? Why is hopelessness epidemic? in the Western world that has more stuff than the world has ever seen. What our world needs is what Leo Tolstoy found, and that's a new story, which is actually the oldest story. He found a new story that they lived not by this story, but there was a whole different story that they, they not only heard, but they actually believed and lived by. And it gave them hope and peace and satisfaction more than all of his achievements and all of his wealth and all of his fame could actually earn. That with all of his stuff, Leo Tolstoy wanted what they had. And I fear today that many Christians live by the same story that the world's living by and then wonder why they're hopeless. Wonder why they're, they're drowning in pleasures and yet not pleased and wondering why they're climbing to the top of the ladder 
and finding it empty. For the next five weeks, we're going to unpack a different story. I don't want to be the pastor who says, why don't we live like that anymore? I want to say, be the pastor who says, what if we did? What if, what if our church and our community decided we're going to live by a different story, a different set of values? The, the stuff that the world values, we're going to say, we're going to consider it rubbish. And, and we're going to live differently because we don't believe what they tell us. You are not defined by what you do or how much you make. Your hope is not determined by, by how smart you are or how good looking you are or what you own. And death doesn't get the final word. So for the next five weeks, starting today, we're going to just unpack a story. It's called the greatest story ever told. It's called by the Apostle Paul, the message of the cross. It's called by a lot of different names. That story is just the story of the universe. The story is life as it is. The story that Christians down through the ages have clung to, have believed, and have lived. And the story is so simple that it's easy to overlook. It starts like a children's story. But it doesn't start with a man starts with God. If you turn, the story starts just like this. In the beginning, God. And right there, you, you know so much about the story right there. Right there, that tells you that this is not a story about you primarily. It's a story about God and what He's doing. If you read the first chapter of this story, you will hear in 34 verses, God referred to 35 times. He is the actor. He's the only one acting, the only one doing, the only one God said, God created, God separated, God saw, God called. It's abundantly clear that this story is not your story. It's God's story. But immediately then it enfolds us because God created the heavens and the earth. This is just a Hebrew way that when you say God created the heavens and the earth, that just means God created all things. Everything that is. Now, this is a point that we could pass over pretty quickly, but I just want to pause for a minute. Included in all things is you and me, right? We're all things. So that means this is the part in the sermon where I'm supposed to stop and say, you are a snowflake. You are unique and precious and sparkling. <laughs> and I'm going to read from Psalm 139, say you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's absolutely true. But I don't think you necessarily need to hear that. Maybe some of you older folks do. But if you're younger than me, you grew up and the world's been telling you you're a snowflake since you were born. You know, in, in second grade, you graduated and they said, oh, bravo. You know, other kids couldn't do it. But you we're going to throw a, a graduation ceremony. You, you are now a third grader. Just this past week, we celebrated Jillian's four and a half birthday with a real cake. And I was so begrudging. I was like, when I was a boy, we didn't believe in no four and a half birthdays. It had to be a real birthday. We celebrate everything. Our kids all know that they are snowflakes. We don't need to cover that. You know what we need to cover? Is that God created all things. Let's unpack this. The Bible is actually going to sound silly. When we talk about this from our modern perspectives, it just sounds crazy. Listen to the way the Bible will literally apply this. It'll say this. Where does the rain come from? Well, Matthew 5:45, he causes the rain and the sun to shine. The, the, it rains because God causes it to rain and the sun shines because God causes the sun to shine. What causes the stars to move? Well, Job's head is God. 
It's the work of God. It's the glory of God and the love of God that pushes them through our universe. What causes the grass to grow? Psalm 104. It's God. God's signature, His goodness, His beauty, His invisible attributes are everywhere crying out in creation so that in that moment, when you're looking over that vast ocean and, and on that great mountain, in that moment, something in you is supposed to burst forth into worship that you can know that God and the love and the grace and the beauty of a God who created that. In fact, the scriptures are going to push this so far that if you're driving through Valley Forge and the fall starts coming on and the leaves turn gorgeous, and if that moment, while you're driving through, you say, that's beautiful, but, but your heart doesn't then turn to God. That's sin. This is willful ignorance and a great evil if you do not acknowledge God in that moment. Because that's what you were created for. So God created all things. And then, what's the next thing? We're going to see He creates man and woman. I know they didn't have any clothes, but I'm not going to draw this appropriately. So He creates a couple. What is this couple like? Well, What's life before sin, without sin? I don't even know. I mean, I don't know. Everything in my life is so tainted with sin. I, I really do What's it like? But we get a glimpse. We hear, well, we know that God gave them a job of creating, of building, of caring for the earth. That there was work, but it was filled with meaning. That every day was charged with meaning and this beauty of creation. That they had this role in, in overseeing God's creation. That their work, their daily lives, were the, to the glory of God. As they built, as they tended, as they cared for, as they grew. We, we see that God told them to be fruitful and multiply. That they were just a starting point. That it wasn't just about them. That they were part of something much, much bigger than just one couple. God was building a whole family. All of humankind. It was all to be God's family. We see they walked with God in the cool of the evening is what the scriptures say. Now God is spirit and truth. What does it mean that God walks with him in the cool of the evening? I have no idea what that literally means. But I do know what it's like to walk with Jenny in the cool of the evening. When uh, we were first married, I don't know about you, when, when my day starts... Start out kind of a clean slate. I have my cup of coffee. Woo! And then I go out and people just beat me up. And then burdens and stress and things just start piling on me. By the time I would get home at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I just felt beat up and bruised and heavy from the end of the day. And so, you know, in Dallas, by 8 o'clock at night, it's cooled down to a lovely 85 or 90. So... That's when we would go out and we would go on a walk. And sometimes we would walk for an hour or more. And we would just share about our day and unload our burdens and talk about our hurts and our struggles and our fears. And we would dream together as a couple and talk about when do we want to have a family and what's our first house going to be like and where are we going to live and what are we going to do. And, and it was the best part of my day. I imagine walking with God in the cool of the evening, something like that. And there's one more thing we know about them. They were naked and unashamed. Now all the young men are like, this does sound perfect. <laughs> but, but let me clarify, this is not about nudity. 
Oh, it is. But it's more than that. This is about being completely secure in who God has made you to be. Imagine having nothing in your life to hide. Imagine feeling so safe that you can share everything with everyone around you. Imagine having no fear of what God thinks of you and no fear of what others think of you. Imagine sharing your, yourself entirely without fear of being misunderstood or manipulated. Imagine that. I don't know if you actually believe in Adam and Eve, and I don't know if you, you agree with this story so far. I know that I'm actually in the minority, even in the church these days, where I, I actually believe all this stuff is true. But whether, whether you believe that this stuff happened or not, you believe what I just said is true, don't you? You know it. You know that when that there's something calling within you when you go out and you see creation, that there's something within you that's bursting forth, seeking something greater than yourself. When you spend time together, you know that you long for that vulnerability, for that you long to be completely secure in who God has made you to be. Because that's just who we are. That's what Tolstoy was looking for. Before we move ahead, I, I want to give you a little Hebrew lesson. For the same reason that I absolutely loved Hebrew, most of the other students in my classes hated it. It was simply this. It's that the Hebrew language, you cannot take a Hebrew word and do a one-for-one -one translation almost ever. Like the words, they just didn't use words like we use. So, so uh, Hebrew, <laughs> every word tells a story, creates a picture, invites you into a conversation. It's not, it's not just a different way of speaking. It's a different view of the world. And so I love this, you know, when we're, we dive into this in every word, I'm like, I get to have a conversation with this word. And, and one of the key words when the Hebrews spoke of what God did in creation, what, what he created here, the power and the scope of this, there's several key words, but the one I want you to learn today is this, ahav. But say it like this, ahav. Okay, say it with me, ready? Ahav. So when, when they thought of creation, they, they said, ah, Ahav. And literally, do you know what ahav means? It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's what you do when you feel a certain way. So 2010, before I came here, I had an opportunity to go on kind of this trip of a lifetime. It was a missions trip to Bulgaria, right on the Serbian border, this small town with this really elite team of 20-somethings, like they would do anything for Jesus. And we went to this small town on the Serbian border, Bulgaria, and we all day long, we worked into this amazing work project. And then late into the night, we ran a Young Life camp, a camp where we told over 100 kids about the love of Christ. And many of them had never heard any of this story. And it was it was amazing. But I was with a bunch of singles. And uh, and life's just a little different when you're traveling and you're single versus married. And so I would go back at night. And I would be exhausted, and I would lay down in bed. And my roommate, he would be snoring away. And for me, this was the longest I'd ever been away from Jenny. And we had a newborn baby boy. And this was the time when Jillian was young, and she used to, every time I'd come home, she'd dance for me. And so as great as that moment was, as great as this trip was, as great as everything was around me, my heart was not there in Bulgaria. And I would sit there at night and think of my wife holding my little baby boy, and that's where my heart was. 
And I would say, ah, oh, man, it's a sweet longing. It's a, it's a pure longing, a sweet emptiness that that's where your heart is. And the Hebrews took this word, this ahav, and said, yes, that, that's what longing is all about. In fact, that's what love is all about. And ahav, over usage, became not just the sound they made, but it became the word, the common word they used for love. That's what love is. It's a sweet emptiness. It's a pure longing where you want something better for that person than you want for yourself. Where, where that's where your heart is. So when they talked about creation, it's an act of pure love of God exploding into creation and that we're invited into this moment where we long for Him, where we long for our fullness in Him. We were created to want Him, want to be fully known, fully secure in Him. Created to have real relationships, relationships where we could be vulnerable, naked where we were created for something bigger than ourselves. We were created to have a life that has meaning. So what's the greatest commandment? The commandment that if you do this one thing, all the rest of your life will make sense. Everything else will fit together. It's to ahav the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That if you have that pure longing for Him, everything else it's in place. He's the source of all things. He's what you're looking for, the Hebrews said. But this isn't the end of the story. This would be a great story if it stopped right here. In fact, as Tolstoy was right, there was a huge fall. Enter the serpent. And you know, the serpent says this. You don't really believe all that stuff, do you? You don't believe that. That, that following God actually gives you what you really want in life. You don't, have you read your Bible? Don't look at pornography. Don't lust. Don't get drunk. Don't do this. Give away all your money. Give up your dreams and follow me. No, no. If you, if you, if you follow God's word, it just gives you the cross. No, what you really want is to be your own God, to be like God. You want to make your own decisions, create your own meeting, create your own value, decide what makes you happy. That's what it's all about. That's what the serpent whispers to Adam and Eve. It, it's not just about biting a piece of fruit. It's about being like God, declaring your independence from God. It's, it's finding your satisfaction, your ahava apart from God. But God says when you do that, when you bite of that forbidden fruit, when you make a decision... That what's going to satisfy you is not God. That is not love. That's lust. And it's hard to describe what fully happened at that moment. At that tree where they bit from a fruit. I mean, if you read through the scriptures, it's massive. It's monumental. It's the world that we live in today. And it's nothing like this world. The prophets and apostles of old, they, they search for words and they, they, they'll say, love was twisted to lust and truth is muddied with lies and vulnerability being naked suddenly is terrifying and is shameful. Life is overtaken with death. The apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two will put it this way. He'll say, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, in which you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You were dead. 
Now, if you first read this, you're like, well. So, the Apostle Paul just said, I'm dead. Okay, Mr. Grumpy Pants. Somebody wake up on the wrong side of the bed here? Somebody need a hug? Dead! Not dead. I'm alive, look at me, hey. What can you possibly mean, the Apostle Paul? What do you mean we're dead? And the Apostle Paul is going to say, death isn't just what happens when they have you on a machine and it flatlines. Death is not just about a beating heart and a body. The Apostle Paul is going to say it this way. It's gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its thoughts and desires. That when your heart cries out, I want more, that you go to something other than God. Death is the image of, of someone who's dying of thirst, gulping down salt water. So let's, let's unpack this for a minute. Death for the Apostle Paul is this. And there's things that were created to be, that who I'm created to be, me, that I want to be more. He's going to say death, death is trying to find yourself apart from God. And it doesn't lead to the happiness you hope for. It leads to shame. It leads to regret. And when you look for those relationships, I want to be naked. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be accepted and, and completely open in my relationships. You know, when you seek that apart from God, it doesn't lead to the vulnerability you're looking for. It leads to what he would call death. And we see this immediately in Adam and Eve, that they immediately start fighting. Right after that, what do their kids do? Cain kills Abel. And he says, I want to be part of something bigger than myself, this great desire, but, but that isn't found when you search for it apart from God. Instead, everyone tries to build their own kingdom, and everyone's fighting over their own kingdom, their own world, their own rule, trying to create their own meaning. And each one of these, the Apostle Paul says, it's when you seek those things apart from God, that's what he defines as death. Now, there is something to say. This sounds, this sounds very spiritual. And so if you follow your own selfish desires, it leads to death, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Every selfish desire, every desire that you seek to fulfill apart from God leads to death. I think we should ask for a minute. Okay, is this true? There just happens to be an entire book of the Bible devoted to this question. So we're lucky. The book of Ecclesiastes. There's a guy who's the best qualified guy in the world at the time. A guy named Solomon. He's got all the resources to actually answer this question. Can I find lasting significance and meaning? Can I find life through money or through success or through mastery of a job or through working really hard or doing really good things or, or just being really creative. Can I find what I'm looking for apart from God? So so he sets to work at this. I don't know if you know anything about Solomon, but he had more money than you'll ever know about. I do my landscaping in my yard and he planted forests. I build like a patio. He builds cities. I have a wife. He had a thousand. <laughs> or this guy, he's just, he's way beyond you. Want, I throw, you know, the height is throw a party. A party so big that the cops actually have to come and shut it down. Amen. He threw parties that lasted for 14 days and involved the entire nation. Okay, a little different scope here. He can do everything at the scale that tests its limits. And he says, let's test this out. Okay, so what, what are you really looking for in life? You want, you want to express yourself in, I don't know, you take a desire, creativity. 
And he says, okay, let's do that. Let's, let's do that. Let's build something amazing. So he like cuts down an entire forest, builds cities, builds palaces, and then he even builds something religious, right? He builds the temple. Now, if there's anything worthwhile in this universe, it would be to build a temple for God. So he, so what does he do? He devotes all this time and energy, builds this wonderful temple, and when he sits back and thinks about it, he's like, ah, oh, that's pretty nice. I'm pretty satisfied with that. Satisfied. And then he dies. He's still coming. And then a few hundred years later, the Babylonians come and completely tear it down. It doesn't last. So he says, okay, so let's, let's look at something else. What about pleasure? Certainly there are, there are times of pleasure that are, that's where life is. And so he, he gets his harem of women and he has just this, he says, it was absolutely awesome for a night. And then the next day, they wanted to do something else. He understood everything he did. He tested everything to its absolute limits and found that every time it doesn't end in ultimate satisfaction. It doesn't end in lasting. In fact, he, he used a word, hevel, which just means it's like a breath. It's meaningless. It's something you can't capture. It's something you can't grab hold of. Meaningless, meaningless is what he repeats over and over again. That everything you pursue in life apart from God under the sun, well, in the end, you're going to die. So how do we escape this? What's, what, what are we supposed to do here? And the fact of the matter is that the scriptures say there is no escape. You cannot get out of this hole. The Apostle Paul says this clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature will never get you out of that hole. If you're seeking to fulfill your own desires, your own way, you will never dig out of that hole. It will always end in death in this life and ultimately you'll be separated from God. So, that's cheery. Let's stop for the day. And uh, No, but God is the next line. You were dead, but God, in His great mercy, God who loved you, sent His Son. And this is the next part of the story. So there's death. We can't climb out of that hole. There's no, there's no vine to climb out of. But God sent His Son and for once in this broken world, we see a life that is a life of courage and a life of sacrifice and a life unlike any we've ever seen. He walks in a confidence and a power we have, we've never seen before. He comes in and here's one person, one solitary person in this broken world who's absolutely secure in who he is. And who he's created to be. One person who, who knows. He knows why he's there and what he's doing. One person who cuts through everything in relationships. And immediately cuts to your heart. One person who invites you to become part of something bigger than yourself. He calls it the kingdom of God. That God is forming a people. That you can be part of something. It's not about you, it's about God. But you can be part of something eternal, something cosmic, part of something so much bigger than yourself. We see this life, this life of perfection, the life the way it's supposed to be lived. And then, in one simple, horrifyingly selfish act of unbelief, they kill him. 
<laughs> they don't just kill him, we kill him. The prophet Isaiah says it this way, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. That with every selfish act, every moment of enjoyment that you did not respond in worship to God, with every breath you took, with every decision in life that you made to, to be independent, to, to be like God on your own and not to live under God. We shouted with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. And there, bloodied and broken and crying out on the cross, he died. And you know what he breathed with his last breath? Ah, ha. And we hear something that the world has not heard in its purity since the beginning of time, but we all were looking for it. That with his last breath, he showed us the love of God for us. The Apostle John, who was actually there that day under that cross, writes it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But unlike all the selfish decisions and selfish acts we made, all the ways we tried to satisfy our desires, unlike all the things that ended in death, he has the one act, one simple, horrifyingly unselfish act of belief that does not end in death, but ends in life. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And what does he invite people to do? He says, go tell everyone. Go tell everyone that what you're longing for is here. Tell everyone about the love of God. That what you're longing for, that, that thing that's incomplete in you, you've seen it. That the cross changes everything. That you can come back into a relationship with God. That you can walk with God in the cool of the evening. That you can know Him. That your relationships, you can follow Him and learn how to be vulnerable again. That you are invited to something bigger than yourself. And that every act of your life, you are a missionary, an ambassador, a representative. You, you are the people of God. That your daily work, that everything you do in life can be charged with meaning. And that someday, for those who believe this story, who trust their lives to the one who died, who follow the path of love and selflessness and sacrifice, they'll be invited to another garden where there's another tree of life that is always in season. That's what we see in Revelation. The problem is the story's not finished yet. 2,000 years have passed and we're still in this. We're still in this time where we have to trust the cross. We're in this time between what Christ promised and what will someday be fulfilled is not yet there. So here's the decision we all have to make. You and I are now part of this story, whether you want to be or not. We have to stand at that cross and say, what am I going to do? Satan's whispering to you just as he whispered to Adam and Eve. You don't want to follow God. You can make your own meaning in life. You can make your own decisions. You can create your own value and seek your own happiness. And Christ is saying, no, you have to trust what I did on the cross for you. You have to follow me. You have to give up all of that and believe that the only way to life is through me. 
For the next four weeks, we're going to look at something. Let me visually show you what, what it's going to be, not only for the next four weeks, but, Lord willing, for the next few years of our church life. We believe that this story, the cross, changes everything. So when we look at our lives in light of this story, we see that when it comes to me and who I desperately want to be, it has to be shaped by the cross of Christ. And when I look at every relationship my, from, from, from knowing you guys to my wife to my kids to parenting, every relationship has to be underneath this cross. It's only through the cross that I can ever know life. I can never know what I'm here for. I can never discover life apart from my selfishness. That I want to be part of something bigger than myself. But it's got to be through the cross. And if I want to find meaning, it's got to be through the cross. So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about how do I individually how do i apply this story how do i live this story how do i believe this story and individually find out what god's calling me to be and then the week after that we're going to talk about relationships in light of the cross what what do my relationships look like if i really believe that that my hope is found in, in god becoming a man and dying for me and showing me the way of love that he paid for my sins what does that mean for me and what does it mean to be part of something bigger? This is a church. And what does it mean to be called out to go tell everybody about this message? To live every moment of our life charged with meaning. So that's where we're headed. For the next four weeks, we'll unpack this. And then, Lord willing, I'd like to, for the rest of our lives, live this. Lives that are shaped not only by the sacrifice of the cross, but by aha. Uh-huh.